Father, we thank you for the steadfastness of your spirit. Lord, who else do we have but you? Lord, you are our hope. You are our refuge. You're our strong tower. You, you hem us in behind and before. Lord, we, we praise you and honor you for sustaining us. Thank you for preserving our church over this last year. Thank you for the ways that we've had to grow. Thank you for the ways that we've had to learn. Lord, thank you even in our grief that you have been present with us and to us. Lord, we pray that you would continue, Father, to work that deep in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in a, a preaching series that will finish up in a couple of weeks on our vision statement as a church that the elders drafted uh, a little over a year ago or finalized a little over a year ago. This is, a, if you look in your bulletin, there's a picture there of an apple tree. And that's sort of a summary picture to help orient you to what we're doing. We, our elders, over the course of 2019 into January 2020, drafted a division statement that goes like this by... Uh, God's grace, we want to become people transformed by the gospel. That's the tree putting its roots down into the soil and the bear fruit in three ways. That we would, um, we would plant churches, that's the first fruit. We would uh, become cross-cultural disciples, that's the second fruit. And we're on the third fruit today, which is biblical justice. We would pursue biblical justice. Now, last week I started with a game, and so it feels like I got to do that again. Uh, can you turn me down just a little bit up here? I'm a little bit loud. Um, but, you know, uh, last week I started off with Name That Tune. Today we're going to play the word association game. We'll see how good you are at this. So I'm going to say a word, and you're going to answer back to me what comes to mind. So let's try this out. Uh, easy one first. Peanut butter? Yeah. All right. Elsa? Uh, good. All right. All right. Buzz Lightyear? Okay, good. You're, you're, you're hanging in. So let's try a couple hard ones. Uh, Alexander Hamilton? Dead. <laughs> Dead? Aaron Burr? You might know. I thought, we, I thought the Hamilton was in the bloodstream. Somebody said that? Okay, good. Uh, okay, let's try a harder one. Bald? Eagle. Beautiful. Uh, did, I, did I hear you say beautiful? <laughs> all, right, all right, 50? The new 40. That's what you said, right? Oh, good. Okay, so y'all are with me this morning. You know... Um, the funny thing is that right now in our society, we're playing the word association game all the time, and it's not very fun. Have you all noticed this? Like, we have a hard time even having conversations right now. Because you say something, and someone hears something very, very different. And that's particularly true with this phrase that we're talking about, biblical justice. You know, like, I say biblical justice, and people hear all kinds of things. Uh, and I say biblical justice, and some people are like, Karl Marx. Right? Or I, I say biblical justice, and people say, oh, politically correct. Or I say biblical justice, and you say the upending of social systems as the oppressed become the oppressors. Okay, maybe not that one. Right? But like people are playing this word association game all the time, and it's very confusing. It's very hard to even have conversations right now. So, you know, it, it's hard to even use this word justice. Because it's got so much freight on, the, on the, the box car, right? There's so much extra freight on that right now that we, what we say and what we mean and what we're trying to communicate mean very different things. And so some people are like, hey, we should just stop using that word. We should abandon that word. And yet your elders, the leaders of our church, have said, no, we, we want to reclaim that word. That, that's God's word, justice. 
That's a Bible word. And we went over this last week looking at the Old Testament, the book of Amos. Uh, we just picked one spot. But, man, you could find this all over the Old Testament prophets. Read the first section of Isaiah. Read Micah. Read, read lots of the Old Testament prophets who came proclaiming God's justice. And today we're going to look at the New Testament, Jesus' words about justice. And, and, you know, we're looking at Jesus' teaching this morning from the Olivet Discourse. Uh, we're going to look at the sheep and the goats. So I want to invite you to find your bulletin, and we're going to read from Matthew chapter 25, verses 36, 31 through 46, and then we're going to read one little uh, verse from Micah. So would you join me? Would you find that? We're going to read this aloud together. You ready? Three, two, one. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels." For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Then from Micah, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, you may hear this and say, what in the world does this passage, this parable of Jesus, have to do with justice? I mean, he doesn't say the word, did you notice this? He doesn't even say the word justice in that entire passage. I mean, you may say, well, is this really about justice? Isn't this a parable about mercy? or a parable about charity, or compassion, or empathy? And the short answer to that is no. Actually, what you see in this passage 
is not about mercy, charity, compassion, empathy. It's about justice. And how do I know that? Because Jesus is telling this parable in the midst of a whole series of parables in what's called the Olivet Discourse, which is all about his second coming. And this parable even features in it the last judgment. Jesus is connecting two ideas that we disconnect. He connects the day of the Lord, this judgment day, with how you treat your neighbor. He's connecting the day of justice with how you treated the people around you, people in need. So this is a parable about justice. Now, Jesus is echoing what we saw in Amos last week, that there are two dimensions of God's justice. This is what I said last week. There's retributive justice and restorative justice. And these two are things that we don't connect, but like train cars in the Bible, they are connected. So retributive justice is day of the Lord, final judgment justice. Restorative justice is this ain't the way it's supposed to be justice. Like caring for the vulnerable. I called him last week the quartet of the vulnerable, the poor, the widow, the orphan, the stranger. Jesus is connecting those teams. And he marries together. And just like if I was doing a wedding up here, uh, we would say, you know, what God hath joined together, let no man put asunder, right? Like, so we don't want to separate what God joins. So this morning, I I only got two points. It's not even really a Presbyterian sermon, right? So (laughs) I want to talk about the ugly divorce and a beautiful marriage. Ugly divorce and a beautiful marriage. Now, um, ugly divorce. Now, if you grew up in the church, it is very likely that you have heard one of two passages at the end of Matthew's gospel preached a lot. And and I could tell you a lot about uh, your church that you grew up in, if you grew up in the church, by which of these you heard more, right? I, I could tell you a lot of them. Both of them are sort of last words of Jesus. So, This passage, the sheep and the goats, are the last words of Jesus, the last teachings of Jesus before he goes in Matthew's gospel to the upper room with his disciples to celebrate the Last Supper and then the garden and the cross and the empty tomb. Last teaching. There's also another last word, which is Matthew 28, which is the last words of Jesus before, after he's resurrected, before he ascends into heaven. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is often called the Great Commission. Right? Go, therefore, into all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey. Uh, I'm with you always, that Great Commission. And here's the funny thing. You can tell, I, I can tell you a lot about the church that you grew up in. If you grew up in the church, by which of those two passages was preached more? See, conservative Bible-believing churches major on the Great Commission. Like, it's all about the Great Commission, all about the Great Commission, all about sharing the gospel, bringing people to Christ. We want people to be saved. If you grew up in a mainline, more liberal church, you would have heard, as I did, never hearing the Great Commission or very rarely hearing that, and hearing lots and lots about the sheep and the goats. Lots and lots about caring for those in need. And what's funny is that almost nobody preaches both, or at least not with the same fervor and conviction, right? Like, we choose. And there's a reason why that, um, why that is. Like, see, maybe your family has a divorce in its history, an ugly divorce in its history. And that ugly divorce sort of still has effects on how the family behaves today. Maybe, maybe there's stories 
that you just don't want to talk about, some family history you don't want to talk about. And that's true, do you know this, in the Christian body of Christ. So can I tell you about an ugly divorce in our history that nobody wants to talk about but deeply affects how we read the Bible? Y'all ready? Okay, good. I'm glad. Um, Thank you for answering me. So it's called the fundamentalist modernist split. It happened in the 1920s in this country. Uh, If you know your American history, the early part of the 20th century was a time of great upheaval. There were a number of things going on for that in in these areas. So like one was uh, the popularization of Darwin's evolution of the species, right? This is where evolution comes, and it's a huge deal in the scientific and church communities, right? Big uproar over that. Then Sigmund Freud, psychoanalysis, understanding of the ego and the id, what makes us people, uh, how do we behave, and why do we do what we do, right? That also rocked the world. Then, Then you had the Great Depression, you had the Spanish flu, you had the First World War. I mean, like, this was a time of great upheaval. And you may not realize this, but there was another strand going on in the church, which was the, um, and it happened in the um, academy, which was higher criticism of the Bible. It came from Germany. And it was looking at particular parts of the Bible and saying, is this really true? Did this really happen? So uh, higher criticism looked at the five books at the beginning of the Bible called the Pentateuch and said, were those really written by Moses? Some looking at the text says, hmm, I don't know. Uh, questioned the dating of the book of Daniel. Questioned a number of things with regard to like, was, was Jericho really? Did that really happen? Did the flood really happen? Like all kinds of this poured into the church about, and it was a lot of people over the reliability of the Bible. Now, and so began a split in the church as part of our family history known as the fundamentalist modernist split. What's interesting is that in our culture now, fundamentalism, uh, this is where this word comes from, but fundamentalist sort of has connotations of backward, uneducated people, right? We talk about somebody being a fundamentalist. It, it has negative connotations of someone who's uneducated, while actually the fundamentalist split happened in the highest uh, universities in our country. So the flashpoints of these two places were Princeton and Union. Princeton in Princeton, New Jersey, Union in New York. And, and what happened to this was um, a man named J. Gresham Machen, who was a professor at Princeton, wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism. And he said, look, in order to really be a Christian, you've got to agree with about five things at least. You've got to agree with the virgin birth, Christ's atonement, his bodily resurrection, the reality of miracles, and the promise of his coming back. Now, this was a, it immediately went bestseller list but it was also a bomb. I mean, this kind of just blew everything up. And uh, Machen went on, left Princeton to start Westminster Seminary. Interestingly enough, I went, started at Princeton, unbeknownst to me, and then transferred to Westminster. I just followed this whole historical trend in my own training. Um, But here's what's sad and to my point, that one of the casualties of that was a split in the church over are we about saving souls Or we are about doing biblical justice. Are we going to be churches? And this is what happened. Fallout ever since then. Are we going to be churches who are about the Matthew 25 sheep and the goats taking care of people's physical needs? Are we going to do justice? Or are we going to be churches that are about Matthew 28, about saving souls? 
And just like a family in a divorce, what's sad is that the church felt like it had to choose. And, you know, this is part of our history. This is why there's still such a divide in this country between those two types of churches. And you can almost guarantee that you grew up in one church or another that preached one or the other. Now, which do we get rid of? And this is what the church has done. So let's, let's think about Jesus without justice or justice without Jesus, because that's where we've ended up. Um, so there are those who push for a Jesus without social justice, emphasizing uh, saving souls, emphasizing Matthew 28. This is conservative, evangelical, Bible-believing churches from the last century, right? And they have emphasized what's called this, a doctrine called the spirituality of the church, we care about people's spirit, spiritual life. We don't care about their physical life. They wouldn't say it that way, but that's what's happened. But to do that, you actually have to do violence to your Bible. right? Jesus' inaugural address in Luke 4, he shows up in a, in a synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he picks up the scroll of Isaiah, and what does he read? He says, uh, I've come here to bring good news to the poor, proclaim release of the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, letting the oppressors press go free, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. This is fulfilled in your hearing, right here. Right? And, and so, like, to, to say, Jesus, no justice, is actually to begin to take a pair of scissors and cut parts out of your Bible. Cut the words out of Jesus. Because, look... Jesus came fulfilling the cries of the prophets. And they were really crying out two things. Uh, they were saying, look, doesn't God see what's happening to us? All the ways that we're oppressed, all the ways that we're suffering, all the ways that this, like we're in captivity and bondage. Where's God? Doesn't he see? Will not God act and deliver? They were asking those two questions. And when, so when they heard Jesus say these words, they weren't thinking, oh, this is just about an individual thing. They were thinking about their whole people. And Jesus comes saying these words of Isaiah, saying like, I am about, yes, saving souls, but I'm also about healing and bringing wholeness to people. You see Jesus doing this in his miracles and doing this in engagement with people. There's the woman who's bleeding, and Jesus not only heals her, but he does it in such a way that he calls attention. He brings restoration to her socially in the community. He, he brings justice to her life. Uh, there's a man who is allied with Rome. He's a tax collector. You know the story. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, right? And he climbs up in a tree to see Jesus. And Jesus not only deals with his sin, but deals with his injustice in the, in the culture, right? Je Jesus is about both. And so, like, look, we can't have a Jesus who saves souls without justice and ignore this part of his earthly ministry. Now, the opposite's true, as well, there are those who push a justice without Jesus. Like, we need to go and help those who are vulnerable, but we don't need all this saving souls stuff. Now, mainline churches have chosen this. We're going to preach Matthew 25. We're going to ignore Matthew 28, right? And neglecting that people are lost without Jesus. They are dying in their sins, Without Jesus, who comes to bring us and make us right with God, who atones for our sins, who makes us right for God. And it's like, what's funny about this is the world is like, oh, yeah, we're all about a justice without Jesus. Right? Like, we don't need Jesus. We can do this. But justice without Jesus, as someone said this past year, just us. 
It's not real justice. Because Isaiah is not promising, like, hey, God's going to come and bring economic fairness and end oppression and physical restoration without also restoring your relationship with God, the relationship between God and his people, bringing us to him, right? This is what is also promised in Isaiah's prophecy. Like, this is who your Savior is going to be. And so, like, to say, you know, God's about justice, but he's not about personal salvation, is a, to commit another secular anachronism. Um, one of the most striking aspects of Jesus' ministry is that he does save souls, right? He does. And attempting to bring justice without Jesus, you may not even get justice, because it's not whole. And so, look, we don't want to fall into the family patterns, right? The ugly divorce, that was a tragedy. There were some good things that were, were, were preserved through that, but there was a lot of damage done. And we've inherited a family history that makes us either or churches, either Matthew 25 or Matthew 28. And look, don't we want to be a whole Bible people? You know, I'm called as a pastor to preach the whole counsel of God, not just the parts that I like, right? Like, we're called to be a whole Bible church, a both-and church, like Matthew 25 and Matthew 28. And we should both preach them both with the same conviction. We should study them and try to apply them with the same conviction. We started off this whole series with Matthew 28, the Great Commission, and now we're here at Matthew 25. We believe both of these. We want to hold on to both of these. In fact, um, Matthew 28 has been called the Great Commission. This little passage we read from Micah, uh, what does God require of you, has been called the Great Requirement. And we want to hold on to both of them, right? The Great Commission and the Great Requirement. So let's focus really quick. Let's, let's get rid of our, the ugly divorce, and let's try to hear the beautiful marriage. What God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. So Jesus and justice, saving souls and doing justice. Let's look at this together. What is, what is God telling us in this passage? Jesus and justice. Now, I know that most of you do not have experience with sheep and goats except for in petting zoos, right? Petting zoo exposure. Anybody probably have any exposure beyond that? Right, right a couple of you. But most of us don't grow up around sheep and goats. Now, shepherds in the first century and to this day in Israel graze sheep and goats together in the same flock. And they do that for two reasons. One is that sheep and goats eat two different things entirely. Uh, the sheep need grass and are kind of picky about what they eat. Goats will eat everything else, right? So they can graze them together without competition for resources. The second is, that, is for crowd control. Okay, this... This, I, I read this. I think this is really funny. Um, sheep will follow a shepherd. Goats will follow a sheep. They will not follow a shepherd. This is very true to Jesus' words in John 10. My sheep hear my voice and follow me. Goats are like, uh-uh, <laughs> right? I ain't following you. I follow, I follow a sheep, but I ain't following a guy, right? I'm not following the shepherd. So this is why Jesus tells this parable. He's going to separate at the last day the sheep from the goats. They're all part of one flock going to separate them. And we're going to look at, hold on, six things from this. They all begin with the letter P, and we're going to pop through them, okay? Um, six marks of Jesus and justice. So first, doing biblical justice is not a way to earn salvation. It's proof. It's proof of salvation. That's first P, proof. 
Um, and we need to say that because sometimes the way this passage has been misused makes it sound like we earn our salvation by the way we care for other people. We earn our salvation, you know, uh, by their, our care for the quartet of the vulnerable. This, but that's not what's going on here. You can see this because notice uh, in this passage, both the sheep and the goats, they don't seem to be surprised that they're talking to Jesus. Both of them claim him, right? Both of them are like, yeah, the goats aren't like, wait, who are you? You know, they, they both are like, okay, we know who Jesus is. Um, they, they both know something about Jesus, but what separates the sheep and the goats is not knowledge about him, but a lifestyle, a relationship with him, right? And a lifestyle. So um, the goats are characterized by not doing things that show off the fact that they're not really sheep. It's not, it's not to earn anything. It's about proof of your salvation. Uh, so a flight attendant one day, uh, one of the perks of uh, her job was being able to travel every once in a while, jump on uh, a flight, and go on vacation. So she, got a, she found out there's an extra seat in first class one day going to Europe, and she jumped on it. Well, as the plane's loading, uh, they go over the intercom, and they, there's an emergency occurs, and you know, they're like, we've got to have, we need more help, we're not sure we're going to be able to fly. And she says, look, I'm a flight attendant, I'll volunteer. Now, why... She, when she, she does that, she's not volunteering to serve on that transatlantic flight to pay for her ticket. The ticket's already paid for. Like, this is a perk of her job. She, already get, she was already going to go to Europe. But she gets up and joyfully serves the other people on the flight just because she gets to go. She has joy in serving because she's like, I'm not paying for this. I'm, just, I'm, willi- I'm willingly and graciously serving. In the same way, look, um, it's unfortunate today when people think, you know, I'm getting brownie points by serving God. I'm doing something that earns his favor. You know, Christians who get the gospel are people like, man, I'm so grateful for the free ride. I'm happy to serve. It's a demonstration of my faith. It's a way I just worked this out. I'm like, man, God has been so abundantly generous to me. How could I not be generous to other people? right? Um, You know, that great social justice warrior, John Calvin, remember him? 16th century French reformer. He had much to say about social justice. This is from his little book on the Christian life. Our true doctrine is not a matter of the tongue, but of life. Neither is Christian doctrine grasped by only by intellect and memory, as if truth is grasped in other fields of study. Rather, doctrine is rightly received when it takes possession of your entire soul, In order for doctrine to be fruitful in us, it must overflow into our hearts, spread out into our daily routines, and truly transform us within. That's from John Calvin, social justice warrior. Second, doing biblical justice means that you must be proximate. You must be proximate. Notice what the sheep say and the goats say. When did we see you? So they're asking the question, neither of them can remember seeing Jesus. Both of them are like, I don't remember this. I don't remember when I saw you. I don't remember missing you. But the difference is that the sheep were putting themselves in a location. They're putting themselves in a way, in a pathway to be able to see need, be able to see the vulnerable, uh, and therefore act. And the goats didn't 
didn't see injustice because where they live, they couldn't see injustice. Right? They couldn't see it because of a lack of proximity. And this is really challenging for us who live in the triangle. Man, this is a nice place to live. That's why people are always moving here, even in a pandemic. Crazy, I know. Right? But it is possible to so orchestrate and engineer your life that you never have to see need. You know what I'm talking about. You can go to those kind of stores and those kind of shopping centers. You can stay on those kind of roads out of that kind of section of town. You can do all those things so that your life means you never have to see vulnerability or need. And that's dangerous to our souls. See, doing biblical justice means it's proof of our salvation and we have to get proximate to it. Doing biblical justice means it's not a program. It's ingrained in us. That's the third P, not a program. I know, I'm stretching a little bit, but hang with me, all right? Uh, Now, there is nothing wrong with programming things. Some of you are programmers, right? (laughs) We program things at our church. We have a schedule. We, We program things that are important to us. So I am not knocking programs. And I don't want you to hear this um, as a smack on anything we've done as a church that's programmatic with regard to justice. You know, but look, biblical justice means that it's gotten deeper than just calendars into the sheep. It's gotten into hearts. It's gotten into lifestyles. And how do I know that? It's because the sheep don't remember it. They're like, I don't remember, like, I took that trip, that mission trip, or I did that thing, I signed up for that program. What? They're like, I was just following the shepherd's voice, just doing my thing. You know, they don't remember it. That's because the sheep are sheep, because biblical justice is about who they are and not about what they do. All right, some of y'all are kind of freaking out. You're like, oh, no. This sermon is going to mean I'm going to have to add all kinds of stuff to my calendar. (laughs) Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe this is a lot more about how you look, see the world. Maybe this is a lot more about how this comes deep into you than it is about, like, even all your actions. It's about who you are, not about what you do. Yeah, this is my prayer for our church, that biblical justice would move outside of programs and become part of who we are, right? It would get ingrained in us. Um, participating in opportunities our church provides would be like training wheels on a bike. Do people still even use training wheels? Do y'all remember training wheels? Am I, okay, some people, are, that's, I think that's a thing that's gotten past, but I think, I hope that the programmatic stuff we do as a church would be like training wheels for us that help this become more like, this is who we are. I don't have to, like, it becomes, like, second nature to us. This is part of my faith. It's not icing on the cake. It's not an extra thing I do when I have some extra, an extra free day. And it's not Martin Luther King Day once a year or Thanksgiving or Christmas offering. It's who I am. Fourth, doing justice must be practical. Practical. Um, if there's anything that Presbyterians love to do, we like to talk about things. You know, we like to have, like, discussions about the right way to do things. We don't want to overthink everything. Man, we are good at overthinking. We just want to, like, analyze it to death. And sometimes we can make the perfect the enemy of the good. You know, we can, like, outthink all this. You know, and, you know I just think, like, uh, what, if, what if we stop, get out of the realm of ideas and just begin putting some things into practice? 
One of my favorite examples of this is I had a, a privilege of visiting a missionary family of our church a couple of years ago in Costa Rica. Seth and Andrea Sears, they've been there since 2009. Uh, they're in San Jose, the capital city. And San Jose has a particular community in it called La Carpio. And it's mostly Nicaraguans who have moved there who live in what is a garbage dump and have made that into a neighborhood. And there's like power and people, there's a huge community of people who live there. And the Sears, their whole point, their, the name of their organization is Give Dignity. They're all about justice and Jesus. And here's their, their, their uh, mission statement, restoring the dignity of those living in marginalized communities. Now, one of the simplest and most beautiful and the most practical pictures I've ever seen of justice is Andrea's ministry, which she calls the princess ministry. And what she realized was that women in that community were particularly, uh, particular sufferers in that community. And so she set up a table and a chair by the bus stop. And she had on there like cleaning supplies and nail polish. And she began washing the feet of women and doing pedicures at the bus stop. I mean, it's so simple. And it, it, you think about it, you're like, is this even justice? Like, she's not changing the world. Like, like, the gang activity is not going down because women are getting pedicures. Economic inequality isn't being solved because she's giving pedicures. But she is giving dignity to women. She's saying, you know what? You're beautiful and you're worth a pedicure. So simple. So beautiful. You know, I think that a lot of times, you know, they're about economic equality. They're about helping with the gang problem in, in that area. But like sometimes the work of doing biblical justice is just simple and practical. Don't overthink it. Um, five, biblical justice is a plural activity. Now, I'm, again, I'm stretching this one. Uh, plural. But the verb form in verse 40 when did we see you? When, you know, when you did this to the least of these, those are plural. It's a y'all when Jesus says this. And, and they did these act, acts of biblical justice together. It was shared. You know, so look, we're not asking you to go by yourself and change the world. But together. And together is really helpful. It, it, it's really helpful for me to hear this as corporate. One together aspect of com our community pr pursuing biblical justice, one great example of that is Safe Families. We've been partnered with Safe Families over years. Safe Families intervenes in families who are in crisis who have children. And they get involved before the, the uh, Child Protective Service or DHS gets involved. And, and they want to help families kind of get through a rough period. Uh, they don't want kids removed from their homes. And so what's offered in safe families is a host family will say, look, we'll temporarily take your kid into your home in order for you to get through this hard season you're getting through. We're going to keep the relationships. We're going to host your child for a temporary period of time, six weeks to six months. But it's never just that family, right? It's a community that comes around. I've loved watching this in our church. There's a, there's a host family, there's a family coach, there's support families, uh, there's individuals that come around all those people, and it's a community thing. We've watched whole community groups do this together. It's a great picture of the us 
of pursuing biblical justice, community deal. Last one here. Doing justice is something we pursue. It's not something we think we're going to nail it. You know, some of y'all, anybody uh, a fan of the show Nailed It, right? Started in 2018. This is a baking show. Three contestants show up, and they're trying to make this incredible confectionery masterpiece cake, you know, like, and, you know, if you get, if you, you win, you know, you nailed it and you get the prize and the trophy and all that kind of stuff. You get to go home with that. And, you know, I think that sometimes this is our view when we think of biblical justice. We got to nail this, you know, but the call to us is just to pursue this pursue that, to grow in these areas. This is why our leadership was very careful in pursuing, in choosing this word, pursue biblical justice. It's something we're going to strive at. We're not going to, we're not going to get it right. We're going to, we're going to make mistakes. Hey, you know what? We're going to get taken advantage of. Who cares? You know what? We all take advantage of the Lord's grace every day. <laughs> you know, so let's, let's stop overthinking and worrying about being taken advantage of. You know, we're not going to get it right. And, you know, I think that, like, we're called as people to pursue this together. Let me, let me wrap up this way. I, I was meeting with somebody recently who helped connect some dots for me on my sermon series. He said, I don't know what you mean by the phrase image bearers. We're doing biblical justice for image bearers. You know, this is, this is what we're pursuing together. Uh, and it comes from that word comes from Genesis one, where we're people who are created from the beginning in the image and likeness of God. We are bearing God's image. That's where that comes from. And the fall in Genesis three, you know, Adam and Eve and the, the snake and all that, that results in us being corrupted in lots of ways, being cursed. We we deal with sin and pain and death, but the image of God is still in us. It's still in us. I want you to picture a beautiful mirror, a, a mirror that is perfectly clean and like really, really crystal clear. And you can see everything in this mirror. And you're like, oh, I don't want to see everything on my face. But like you can see everything in this mirror. But picture what happens in the fall. The mirror is broken. It's smudged. It, it, it's all of us. This is who we are. We're people who are like broken mirrors. And you, you can still faintly see like the image of God in that, but the mirror is broken. It's cracked and smudged. And, you know, some of us are better at hiding some of that than others. For some people, it's like, man, really, really obvious how broken they are. For others, man, we dress that up. We're good at faking and hiding, and it's much more easy to see. But, like, to repair the mirror means you're going to have to handle broken glass. What happens when you handle broken glass, brothers and sisters? You're going to get cut. And this is what we see even in Jesus. Isaiah 53 tells us he was pierced for our iniquities. For us to make, become whole again, whole image bearers again, meant Jesus had to be cut deeply. That's what we see on the cross. Pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. You know, our church says pursuing biblical justice is following God's command to seek and bring biblical wholeness to broken image bearers in our society and the world. This is going to mean two things. It's going to mean sharing the good news of Jesus with people, right? We want people to be saved. We want the mirror to be made whole. 
But it's also looking at the mirror and realizing it's smudged. And part of our role in this, of doing justice, is cleaning the mirror. And just like with Jesus, when he handles broken glass, you handle broken glass at the edges, it's likely you're going to get cut. I mean, we're going to get hurt doing this. It's going to cost us something. It may be painful for us at times. But isn't that the work of the church? Aren't we a both-and church? Matthew 28, Matthew 25. You know, we want people to see people come to know Jesus. We want to see their lives know wholeness, shalom, fullness. We want to reunite the family again around the central callings that we're called to. We're like, that's past family history. We're tired of telling the divorce story. We want the beautiful marriage. And then what we're called to? Isn't the world called to reunite the family around the main work that God's called us to? Matthew 25, Matthew 28. Who's with me? Anybody? Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we need you. Lord, uh, we confess, Father, that there are ways that this is costly for us in ways that we don't want to be bothered. Lord, our our schedule, our time, our pocketbook. uh, Lord, it's easier to spiritualize these things away or to avoid them. Lord, we pray that we would be people who love what you love. Lord, we would be like sheep who follow our master's voice. We go into the hard places. We're not afraid because, Lord, we know you're with us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.